Chapter 31 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. While in the midst of my occupations, a messenger was dispatched to me by the chief of a Cheyenne village, at that time encamped about twenty miles distant, with an invitation to visit them and trade there. This village was composed of outlaws from all the surrounding tribes who were expelled from their various communities for sundry infractions of their rude criminal code. They had acquired a hard name for their cruelties and excesses, and many white traders were known to have been killed among them. The chief's name was Mohet Nisto, the elk that calls, and he was a terror to all white people in that region. The village numbered 300 lodges and could bring from 12 to 1,500 warriors into the field the best fighters of the nation. We called it the City of Refuge. The messenger arrived at my post and inquired for the crow. I am the crow, I answered. The great chief, Mohenesto, wants the crow to come to his lodge. What does he want with me? He wants to trade much. What does he want to trade? He wants much whiskey, much beads, much scarlet, much kettles, and he enumerated a list of articles. Have your people any robes by them? Oh, they have so much robes that they cannot move with them. Any horses? Great many, good crow horses. Well, said I, I will go straight away and you must show me the way. Who will go to the village of the elk that calls, I asked. I want two men. Peterson and another volunteered to accompany me. But by this time the matter in hand had reached Sublet's ears, and he came forward and said, You are not going to the village of the outlaws, Beckworth? Yes, I replied, I am. Don't you know that they kill whites there? Yes, I know that they have killed them. Well, I object to your going. Captain Sublet, I said, I have promised the Indian that I will go, and go I must. There has been no traitor there for a long time, and they are a rich prize. He saw that I was resolved, and having given me the control of affairs, he withdrew his objection and said no more. I accordingly prepared for the journey. Ordering the horses, I packed up my goods, together with twenty gallons of whiskey, and issued forth on the way to uncertain destruction, and bearing with me the means of destruction certain. The Indian conducted me to the chief's lodge. I dismounted my two men following my example. The chief came to us, 
and passed the usual compliments. He desired me to take off my packs, at which request I immediately remounted my horse. What is the matter? inquired the chief. When I send for my friends to come and see me, I said, I never ask them to unpack their horses or to guard them, but I have done it for them. You are right, my friend, said he. It shall be done. Get off your horse and come into my lodge. I dismounted again and was about to follow him. My men, who did not understand our conversation, arrested my path to inquire what was in the wind. I bade them keep quiet, as all was amicable, and then entered the lodge. We held a long conversation together during which the chief made many inquiries of a similar nature to those addressed me at the first village. In recounting our achievements, I found that I had stolen his horses, and that he had made reprisals upon the crows, so that we were about even in the horse trade. At length he wished me to broach the whiskey. No, said I, my friend, I will not open the whiskey until you send for your women to come with their robes, and they have bought what goods they want first. They work hard and dress all your robes. They deserve to trade first. They wish to buy many fine things to wear, so that your warriors may love them. When they have traded all they wish, then I will open my whiskey, and the men can get drunk. But if the men get drunk first, your women will be afraid of them, and they will take all the robes, and the women will get nothing. Your words are true, my friend, said the chief. Our women shall trade before the men get drunk. They dress all our robes. It shall be according to your words. Accordingly, he sent for all the women who had robes and wished to sell, to come and trade with the crow. They were not long in obeying the summons. Forward they came, some with one robe and some with two. Two was the most that any of them had, as the men had reserved the most to purchase whiskey. The trading was expeditiously effected. We did not have to take down and open all our goods, and then sell a skein of thread, and be informed by our customer that she would look elsewhere first, and perhaps call again, which is the practice of many young ladies, especially where there is an attractive shopman. We could hardly hand out things fast enough. We served all the women to their entire satisfaction and closed out our stock of dry goods. We then proceeded to the whiskey. Before opening the kegs, I laid down my rules to the chief. I told him that his people might spree as long as they chose, but that they must not obstruct my business or interfere with me. As the liquor was served out to them, they must carry it out of the lodge and not stay to be in my way and give me trouble. This was readily assented to, and the sales began. 
whiskey will have the same effect everywhere. And if a man will traffic in the cursed stuff, he must submit to his share of the mischief he creates. My understanding with the chief was productive of no effect. He came into the lodge saying, I have killed an Indian. I looked and saw that his battle axe was dripping with blood. Yells and tumult increased outside. The chief was again making his way toward the lodge, protected by a host of friends, while behind him, and striving to get at him, was an infuriated throng, fighting and yelling like devils. My store, in an instant, was filled to overflowing with opposing parties, composed of outlaws from a dozen tribes. I sprang to secure my gun, and my companions, mistaking my movement, supposed I had started to run, and they broke out of the back of the lodge and did not stop until they reached our post on the plat. Battle axes and knives fairly rung through the lodge during the continuance of the fight, but it was over in a few minutes and they withdrew to the place outside and renewed it to greater advantage. At the restoration of peace, some ghastly wounds were shown to me, but singular to say, none of the belligerents were killed. Mohi Nasto, after a short interval, returned, without having received a single scratch, and said all was quiet again, and they wanted more whiskey. The women wished to get some also, he informed me. I knew that, if the women were going to join in, I must have another supply, and I told the chief I had not enough left to get the women drunk. Send for more then, said he. Our women are buried up and smothered with robes, and will buy very much. I soon found a volunteer to run to the post to carry an order to Sublet to send me twenty gallons more of whiskey. My assistants, after making their hasty exit from the back of the chief's lodge, reported at the post the state of affairs at the village of the outlaws at the time they left. Guns were being fired, they said, and, beyond all doubt, Beckworth was killed. No one dared to go and ascertain the result. Sublet was in great trouble. I did my utmost to prevent his going, he consoled himself by saying, but he went in opposition to all orders and advice. So, if he is killed, the responsibility does not rest upon me. By and by, my messenger arrived with the order for more whiskey. Sublet took the letter and read it. Ho, oh, said he, Jim is not dead yet. He has sent for more firewater. Who will take it to him? Four men volunteered for the errand and arrived with it next day. The Indians took their horses away from them and they became alarmed. But when they shortly after saw me up to my neck in buffalo robes, their fear subsided. 
These two kegs went off as actively as the proceeding, and the robes fairly poured in. The whole village moved on toward the post, singing, dancing, and drinking. And when I had approached within five miles, I had to send for two kegs more. In short, the sixty gallons of firewater realized to the company over eleven hundred robes and eighteen horses, worth in St. Louis six thousand dollars. This trading whiskey for Indian property is one of the most infernal practices ever entered into by man. Let the reader sit down and figure up the profits on a 40-gallon cask of alcohol, and he will be thunderstruck, or rather whiskey-struck. When disposed of, four gallons of water are added to each gallon of alcohol. In 200 gallons, there are 1,600 pints, for each one of which the trader gets a buffalo robe worth $5. The Indian women toil many long weeks to dress these 1,600 robes. The white trader gets them all for worse than nothing, for the poor Indian mother hides herself and her children in the forest until the effect of the poison passes away from the husband's fathers and brothers, who love them when they have no whiskey and abuse and kill them when they have. Six thousand dollars for sixty gallons of alcohol! Is it a wonder that, with such profits and prospect, men get rich who are engaged in the fur trade? Or is it a miracle that the poor buffalo are becoming gradually exterminated, being killed with so little remorse that their very hides, among the Indians themselves, are known by the appellation of a pint of whiskey. The chief made me a gratuity of forty robes. On two subsequent visits I paid him on his invitation, he made me further presents until he had presented me with one hundred and eighty-five robes without receiving any equivalent. The extent of his royal munificence seriously alarmed Sublet. It was just this same profuse spirit, he said, that had bred disputes with other traders, often resulting in their losing their lives. It is as well a savage custom as civilized to expect a commensurate return for any favors bestowed, and an Indian is so punctilious in the observance of this etiquette that he will part with his last horse and his last blanket rather than receive a favor without requital. Mohinesto, without intending it, was rather troublesome on this point. When he became sober after these drunken carousals, he would begin to reflect seriously on these things. He would find his robes all gone, his women's labor, for it would take months of toil in dressing and ornamenting these robes, thrown unprofitably away. His people had nothing to show for their late pile of wealth, and their wants would remain unsupplied. They would have no guns or ammunition to fight the crows, who were always well supplied, and their whole year's earnings were squandered. 
These reflections would naturally make him discontented and irritable, and he would betake himself to the post for reparation. White man, he would say, I have given you my robes, which my warriors have spent months in hunting, and which my women have slaved a whole year in dressing. And what do you give me in return? I have nothing. You give me firewater, which makes me and my people mad. And it is gone, and we have nothing to hunt more buffalo with and to fight our enemies. The generality of traders will endeavor to make it apparent to him that there was a fair exchange of commodities affected, and that he had the worth of his wares, and they can do no more for him. This angered him, and in his disappointment and vexation he would rise the war-hoop. His warriors would rush to him. He would harangue them for a moment, and assault would be made upon the trading post. The goods would be seized, and in many instances the trader would be massacred and scalped. I saw the necessary relation between all these events and knew that simple justice in exchanges would avoid all such catastrophes. I therefore told Sublet to feel no uneasiness, as I could arrange matters so as to afford general satisfaction. Well, said he, go your own way to destruction. A day or two after this, Sublet came to inform me that Mohi Nesto was on his way to the fort. I looked out and saw the chief and his wife both approaching on horseback. As he entered, I received him with great ceremony, taking him by the hand and bidding him welcome to the fort. I had his horses well attended to, a sumptuous supper for himself and wife served up, and while the meal was preparing, entertained him with liquors fit to make any topper's mouth water. After supper, he got gloriously fuddled and went to bed, ignorant of what was passing in the world around him. In the morning, I inquired of him how he felt. Ugh, much bad. Head ache strong. I then gave him another whiskey punch, well flavored with spices. He and his lady drank deeply and then partook of a hearty breakfast. He then felt well again. I next led him into the store, where he had a large assortment of every Indian novelty. I knew he had children, as well as how many, so I selected a five-striped Hudson's Bay blanket for himself, another for his wife, and one for each of his children, besides an extra scarlet blanket for his eldest son a young warrior. To his wife, I also gave a two-gallon brass kettle and beads enough to last her for a year or two. In fact, I selected more or less of every description of article that I thought would be useful to them or that I thought an Indian eye could covet. These presents I ceremoniously laid upon the counter 
until I had two or three large piles of quite attractive-looking goods. The chief and his wife had watched me laying all these goods before them. I then asked them if they saw anything more anywhere in the store that they thought they would like. Mohi Nashto opened his eyes wide with surprise. What? he exclaimed. Are all those things for us? Yes, I said. They are for you, your wife, and your children. Something for you all. When I have a friend, I like to be liberal in my gifts to him. I never rob the red men. I never take all their robes and give them nothing but whiskey. I give them something good for themselves, their wives, and their children. My heart is big. I know what the red men want and what their families want. My friend, your heart is too big. You give me much more than I ever had before. You will be very poor. No, I said. I have many things here, all mine. I am rich, and when I find a good friend, I make him rich like me. I then bade him look the store carefully through to see if there was anything more that he would like. He looked, but saw nothing more that he needed. I then made the same request of his wife, whose satisfaction beamed all over her face, but she too was fully supplied. I then stepped into another room and returned with a fine new gun with a hundred rounds of ammunition and a new, highly finished, silver-mounted battle-axe. This was the Comble de Benefait. I thought he would not recover from the shock. He took the battle-axe in his hand and examined it minutely, his face distorted with a broad grin all the while. You, said he, you give me too much. I gave you no robes, but you have proved that you are my friend. When they were ready to start, there was an extra horse for him and a fine mare for his wife, ready, waiting at the door. There, my friend, said I, is a good horse for you. He is swift to run the buffalo. Here is a fine mare for you, I said to his wife. Indian women love to raise handsome colts. I give her to you, and you must not let the crows steal her from you. She displayed every tooth in her head in token of her satisfaction, and she mounted to return home. The chief said as he left, I am going on a war party, and then to kill buffalo. I will come back again in a few moons. I will then come and see you, and I will kill you. I will crush you to death with robes. And away they went, never better satisfied in their lives. Now, is it to be supposed that the company lost anything by this liberality? That chief whose hands were stained with the blood of so many traitors, would have defended my life till the last gasp. While I was in his country, 
No other trader could have bartered a plug of tobacco with him or his people. The company still derived great profits from his trade. Besides the immense returns derived from my transactions with the village, I cleared over $500 from my exchanges with the chief alone, after the full value of my munificent presents had been deducted. One day, the Cheyenne dog soldiers were to have a dance and count their coups. I called all the crows who were in the band and asked them if the regulations would admit of my joining in the dance. Certainly, said they, nothing will please them more. They will then believe that you have joined them. Accordingly, I painted myself and put on a uniform, including a chief's coat, new from the shelves, and painted my white leggings with stripes, denoting a great number of coups. When ready, I walked toward them as great a man as any. On seeing me approach, there was a general inquiry. Who is that? Where did he come from? When the ceremonies commenced, I joined in and danced as hard as any of them. The drum at length sounded to announce the time to begin to count. I stepped forward first and began, Cheyennes, do you remember that you had a warrior killed at such a place, wearing such and such marks of distinction? Yes, we know it. I killed him. He was a great brave. There was a tap on the drum, and one coup was counted. I proceeded until I had counted my five coups, which is the limited number between the dances. Next in turn, the bobtailed horse counted his five on the crows, and to his various illusions I assented with the customary, I remember! This betrayed who I was, and they were delighted to see one of the dog soldiers of the crows join their band. The bobtail horse made me a valuable present, and I returned to the fort with six splendid war horses and thirty fine robes, presented to me at that dance, as my initiation gifts, or bounty money, I suppose for joining their army. I was then a dog soldier in the picked troop of the Cheyennes, compelled to defend the village against every enemy until I died like Macbeth, with harness on my back. The Crows had been informed by sundry persons in the employ of the American Fur Company that I had joined their inveterate enemies. They were satisfied with my proceeding. The medicine calf is a cunning chief, they said. He best knows how to act. He has joined the Cheyennes to learn all about their numbers the routes of their villages, and so forth. When he has learned all that he wants, he will return to us, and then we can fight the Cheyennes to greater advantage. I was now in my second winter with Sublet in the Cheyenne and Sioux country. He had succeeded far beyond his expectation, and he still continued to make money by thousands.
we had curtailed the number of subposts and thereby materially reduced his expenses. Indeed, they were now less than half what they were the preceding winter. Leaving Sublitz, I went down to the South Platte, distant 150 miles, and indulged in a short rest, until I heard that the Cheyennes of the Arkansas, those that I first visited, were about to make their spring trade, and I went over to meet them and bring them to our fort. I found them. All appeared to be glad to see me, and they returned with me. In crossing the divide or ridge between the two rivers, our spies in advance discovered a party of Pawnees, and a charge was immediately made upon them. We only killed three of the enemy. I counted a coup by capturing a rifle. The victim who abandoned it had been already killed. While we engaged the enemy, the village went into camp, and I proposed to my fellow warriors to return to the village after the manner of the crows, which was agreed to. There were several in the party, so we could easily raise a good crow song, and the Cheyenne warriors could join in. We struck up merrily and advanced toward the village. As soon as the women heard our voices, they ran out to see who were coming. There were several captive crows among the Cheyennes, who, I supposed, had lived among them ever since I had been sold to the whites. These recognized our stave and exclaimed, Those are crows coming! We know their song! This brought out the whole village who stood waiting our arrival, in surprise and wonderment. As we drew near, however, they distinguished me in the party, and the mystery was solved. The crow is with the Cheyennes! We performed all kinds of antics, made a circuit round the village, going through evolutions and performances which the Cheyennes had never before seen, but with which they were so highly pleased that they adopted the dance into the celebrations of their nation. That night, the scalp dance was performed, which I took part in, as great a man as any. I sung the crow song, to the especial admiration of the fair sex. The next morning, we resumed our journey to the fort, which we reached after three days' travel. The village had brought a great number of robes, together with some beaver, and a great trade was opened with them. At this time, I had a difficulty with a Cheyenne, the only one I ever had with any of the tribe. I was eating dinner one day when a great brave came in and demanded whiskey. I repaired to the store with him to supply his want when I found he had no robe to pay for it and was, besides, intoxicated. I refused to give him the whiskey telling him he must first go and bring a robe. This probably aggravated him, and he made a sudden cut at me with his sword, which I very fortunately dodged, and before he could raise his weapon again, I had him between my feet on the ground. I had left my battle-axe on my seat at the table, 
and I called out for someone to bring it to me, but no one came with it. I at length released him, and he went hooping away to obtain his gun to shoot the crow. I seized my own and waited for him at the door, while all the inmates of the fort begged of me not to shoot him. After some little delay, he appeared, gun in hand, but three Cheyenne warriors interfered to stop him, and he returned into his lodge. The day following, he sent for Sublet and myself to go and dine with him, and we went accordingly. Sublet was apprehensive of mischief for my visit, and endeavored to dissuade me from going, but I foresaw no danger and knew farther that it would be a cause of offense to the Indian to neglect his invitation. When we entered his lodge, he was glad to see us and bade me be seated on a pile of robes. I sat down as desired, and our host, after holding a short conversation with Sublet, turned to me and spoke as follows. Oh, Tani, Crow, I was a fool yesterday. You spared my life. I do not want you to be angry with me, because I am not angry with you. I was drunk. I had drunk too much of your whiskey, and it made my heart black. I did not know what I was doing. Very well, said I. I am not angry with you. When you attempted to kill me, I was angry. And if my battle axe had been in my hand, I should have killed you. You are alive, and I am glad of it. Take those robes, he rejoined, and hereafter you shall be my brother, and I will be your brother. Those robes will make your heart right, and we will quarrel no more. I took the robes with me, ten in number, and found my heart perfectly mollified. Mr. Sublet and Vasquez, having realized immense profits during their three years of partnership, disposed of all their interest and efforts in the Rocky Mountain fur business, and returned to St. Louis. This threw me entirely out of business, when Messrs. Bent and Savarine wished to engage me in their employ. After some little negotiation with them, I concluded a bargain and entered into their service in the latter part of the summer of 1840. We immediately proceeded to establish subposts in various directions, and I repaired to Laramie Fork. As soon as it was known among the Indians that the Crow was trading at Bent's Post, they came flocking in with their robes. Old Smoke, the head chief of another band of outlaws, known as Smoke's Band, but claimed by no particular nation or tribe, visited me with his village and commenced a great spree. I gave them a grand entertainment, which seemed to tickle their tastes highly. They kept up their carousal until they had parted with 2,000 robes and had no more remaining. They then demanded whiskey, and I refused it. No trust, the motto we see inscribed on every low-drinking saloon in St. Louis, 
is equally our system in dealing with the Indians. They became infuriated at my refusal and clamored and threatened if I persisted. I knew it was no use to give away, so I adhered to my resolution. Thereupon they commenced firing upon the store and showered the bullets through every assailable point. The windows were shot entirely out, and the assailants swore vengeance against the crow. According to their talk, I had my choice either to die or give them whiskey to drink. I had but one man with me in the store. There had been several Canadians in the fort, but on the first alarm they ran to their houses, which were built around the fort, within the pickets, to obtain their guns. But on the Indians informing them that they would not hurt them, that it was only the crow that they were after, the Canadians stayed within doors and abandoned me to my fate. I and my companion sat with our rifles ready cocked, well prepared to defend the entrance to the fort. We had plenty of guns at hand ready loaded, and there must a few have fallen before they passed the gate. At dusk, I closed the door, but we lay upon our arms all night. The Indians kept up a great tumult and pother, but attempted nothing. Mr. Bent and Savarine arrived in the morning and wanted to be informed of the cause of the disturbance. I acquainted them, and they approved my conduct. They were astonished at my immense pile of robes and applauded my fortitude. When the outlaws became sobered, they expressed contrition for what they had done and charged their excesses upon John Barleycorn, which plea I admitted. At the same time, it appeared quite inconsistent that I, who was that celebrated gentleman's high priest, should be set upon and almost murdered by his devotees. Nothing noteworthy occurred until the following January when the Indians, being again on the spree, once more attempted my life. I fled to a post in the Arapahoe country in charge of Mr. Alex Warfield, now a colonel in the army. He resigned the post to me and took my place at Bent's post. I had but little trouble with the Indians here. Cutnose, an old brave, who, it seems, had been in the habit of obtaining his drams of Warfield gratis, expected to be supplied by me on the same terms. I resisted this invasion and seriously ruffled the feathers of the old chief thereby. He left at my refusal and did not return again that day. During the ensuing night, the Pawnees came and stole both his horses and mine. The old man raised a party, went in pursuit, recaptured all the horses, took two scalps, and returned in high spirits. He visited the store and informed me what he had done. Well, said I, that is because I gave you no whiskey yesterday. If I had given you whiskey, you would have drunk too much and been sick this morning in consequence then you would not have been able to pursue the Pawnees, and you would have lost your horses. 
However, I gave him some whiskey then in honor of his achievement. This, as I had expected, pleased the old fellow, and he restored me my horses, and charged me nothing for their recapture. As soon as the spring trade was over, I abandoned that post and returned to the Arkansas. Savarine desired me to go and see if I could open a trade with a village of Arapahoes, which he had heard was encamped at forty miles' distance. I accordingly started in their direction, accompanied by two men. We journeyed on until we had arrived within a short distance of the village, when we discovered on our road a band of three or four hundred traveling Indians. I saw they were Comanches and I bade the two men to run for their lives, as I knew the Comanches would kill them. I directed them to the Arapahoe village, and bade them shout their loudest when they came in sight of it. They left me, and ascended a slight eminence a little distance in advance, and then, shouting to the extent of their lungs, they put their horses down at the best speed. I rode up after them and telegraphed with my blanket to the village to have them come quickly. They obeyed my motions and fell in with the Comanches on their way to me. The two tribes proved to be friends, and my companions were safe. On arriving at the village, I found abundance of robes and opened a very successful trade with the people. This finished... I returned to the fort and assisted the other employees in loading the wagons for their trip to St. Louis. End of chapter 31